0: Hi, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm your host, Francis Sachs, and today I'm joined by writer Ray Naylor to talk about his new book, The Mountain in the Sea. Set in the near future, the book chronicles the stories of otherwise unrelated characters as their lives are touched in various ways by the same conglomerate AI company, Dianima. Upon coming into contact with Dianima, either willingly or unwillingly, the characters must reckon with forms of intelligence different than that of humans. Throughout the stories, the boundaries of what counts as consciousness somehow contract and broaden at the same time. Consciousness becomes something mappable and replicable, but also extends beyond the exclusive purview of Homo sapiens. Ray, welcome to the show.
1: Francis, thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: So I thought we could start by talking about what inspired you to write this book.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good question. Complicated question um, right off the bat, actually. I, you know, it's it's hard sometimes to say what what inspires a, a novel. I'm usually a short story writer, so usually what inspires a short story is you get, like, one idea. It's usually a pretty clear idea, and then it mixes with a few other things, and and you get a short story out of it. For a novel, I think it's sort of – it's, like, everything – In your life on one hand, and then it's like a few specific incidents on the other hand. So I, I worked on Kondal on some projects with youth, helping them to photograph small species like insects and uh, frogs, lizards, that kind of thing for a group called biodiversity peak. Um, the biodiversity group. And then they have a program called Biodiversity Peak. And we worked on a program called Biodiversity Peak Condal. And the idea was to empower these youth who are living in this uh, nature preserve and marine protected area to be involved in um, looking at life there and documenting it. And they would upload these pictures to a website where US scientists would then identify the species and the, the youth could sort of see how they had contributed to the scientific process. It was really interesting, and, uh, um, especially because we had this big ambition to have them also learn how to scuba dive so they could go out and photograph the reefs and, uh, and the, you know, all of the life out there. But we found that they couldn't swim, even though they had grown up on these islands. They really were very alienated from the world around them. And I mean, I think that's it was interesting because it was it's sort of symptomatic of the way that modern life is like we're so alienated from nature but this was like just very in your face it was like wow they live on a place that is you know so completely involved with the ocean but they can't swim in it and so we taught them how to swim and then how to snorkel and scuba dive and i think you know overall the program was great because it just gave them a sense of being more integrated into the place where they were the place where they grew up. So that was a big inspiration that work. Also just my fascination with the octopus and with animal intelligence in general is something that I've been really interested in for a long time. I'm interested in biosemiotics, which is a kind of uh seems like a, a very esoteric title, but it's it's a pretty basic idea. It's the idea that life fundamentally exists of the exchange of information. So That there's a a strata of course that life exists in a physical you know form that we all have but that physical form is formed out of informational exchanges at the cellular level and then all the way up through the cultural level of exchange and that basically each one of us is this constant process of exchanging information both internally within our own systems and then externally with other agents other people parts of the environment animals etc so That kind of fascination, that sort of concrete experience combines with my fascination with misunderstanding. So I've spent 20 years living uh, outside of the United States and and very much outside of my own context that I grew up in. I grew up in California um, and I pretty solidly grew up in one place. I mean, a lot of Americans move around, but I actually spent my entire education in California from kindergarten all the way through graduating from university. So I was very embedded in this one place. And then I moved to uh, Turkmenistan to be a Peace Corps volunteer. And I learned what it was to be completely out of context and misunderstood and to be ignorant again of, you know, how you communicate with a human being. Right. Um, The Turkmen were very different from Americans, of course, and had their very particular points of view on the world. They were also quite isolated. So it was one of these uh, societies where there was real difference. They did not participate much in the global monoculture and they really had like a very, very strikingly unique way of looking at a lot of things. So so those kinds of ideas of miscommunication, of animal communications and 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 life fundamentally existing, you know, as a communicative practice. And then that place, the Kanda Archipelago, which is just so beautiful. And those things all sort of somehow came together and inspired me to start writing this. Um, and maybe the spark was just um my my daughter being born because i realized that i started really seriously writing the novel about a month after she was born and i kind of i give this as my worst piece of writing advice ever which is you should always start writing your novel one month after the birth of a child <laughs> like the absolute worst time to try to do anything uh, but uh yeah that's i mean that's kind of the a lengthy answer, but at the same time, I mean, I don't know how to shorten it because a novel is just always this dense thing that comes out of so many different places.
0: Could you give a a brief overview of the main storylines of the book, just to orient people while we're talking and referencing characters?
1: Sure. There's three main storylines in the book. The central one, the, the, what I would say the main protagonist is Dr. Hang Nguyen and she is invited by Dianima, this big AI corporation to come to the Condal archipelago, which has been, um, evacuated or, you know, um, cleared of its residents and cordoned off from the rest of the world. She's invited there to try to establish communication with what the corporation believes is a symbol using octopus. And I'm very careful about these terms because um, most animals are probably sentient, meaning they have a sense of of self of some kind or another and and an increasing sense of self as they become more complex and uh, their nervous systems grow. Um, So... Theoretically, right, a, an insect would have a low sense of self, um, but there might be some kind of presence there, something that it means to be an insect. And then if you get up to, say, a dolphin, a dolphin probably has a, a very concrete sense of being an individual uh, in the world. So she's there to try to establish some kind of communications with this species and and uh, study it. In the second line in the novel, there uh, is a character called Rustem who has been hired by an unknown uh, entity to break into a very complex AI system. And this is what Rustem does for a living. Uh, But that becomes increasingly dangerous uh, as he sort of learns more about what he's really been tasked to do. And then in the third line, we have Eiko who is a slave. On a fishing vessel, which is uh, captained by an AI captain, and this third narrative line follows really closely the reality of today, which is that we have tens of thousands of slaves on fishing vessels all over the world. Um, we don't call people slaves anymore. We tr- like to call them, um, you know, trafficked persons or come up with other uh, euphemisms, right? But Uh, The fact is that slavery is a really widespread part of the modern world, and there may be, in fact, more slaves right now than there ever were in human history, given the large numbers of people that there are. And I would define a slave as anyone who's forced to work for no compensation by another entity and has their freedom taken away from them in some way. So that's something that's happening to Millions and millions, tens of millions. Let's say I don't think anyone really has good numbers on it today. So that third line is the closest in some ways to a reality, except for the AI captain and the and the fully autonomous uh, fishing vessel. Otherwise, it's it's pretty close. So the so those three narrative lines um, seem very very separate, but I promise readers they do converge uh, toward the end uh, of the book. Um, Yeah. I think that's, uh, is that what do you think? Is that, is that a good enough description to get people started? Perfect.
0: Perfect. I would be hooked. (laughs) So the first thing I was struck by when I, when I just opened the book among the first pages was just how vivid the imagery of places in your writing, particularly when it's dominated by water. And I feel like every time you introduce a new character, it's within the context of some kind of water. I just wanted to read one of the first lines that you write in the book, which I, it stuck with me so much, which was the plastic awning of the cafe streamed with rain. Under its shelter, wreathed in kitchen steam and human chatter, waiters wove between tables with streaming bowls of soup, glasses of iced coffee, and bottles of beer. Beyond the walls of rain, electric motorbikes swept past like like luminescent fish. Why why does water play such a big role in in the backdrop of this book or, and, and also the forefront of this book.
1: It's really interesting. I had never actually thought about it, but you're right. The four books of the mountain and the sea all have to do with water and take place sort of on or near or, you know, in the water in some way. Yeah. That's kind of a revelation for me. I actually had not, uh, not thought about that. So it might be, must be something that's operating kind of underneath my, my very, conscious level of structuring the book but you know I do think that a big part of the of the book's idea is that we you know we we come from the ocean right we really do and 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 we do carry the ocean the salinity levels of the ocean the the traces of our evolutionary history and our sort of march out of the sea with us and and I think that for me water is very closely tied to an idea of connectivity with the world. So one of the amazing things about scuba diving is when you dive, you really feel as if you become a part of the water around you, because especially if you're diving in a place like Vietnam, where the water is close to your own body temperature and you're not fighting off the difference between the very cold water around you and your, and your blood, you really get the sense of almost entering into the world's bloodstream, right? Like being inside and involved with the world. And I was always, I, I feel that when I'm around, you know, the ocean, but I also feel it like with rain and things like that um water sort of forces us into connection with the world in a way that air does not air is really interesting because i mean you know in buddhist meditation one of the things that they'll try to get you to do is to concentrate on the breath and the reason you need to concentrate on the breath is because air doesn't feel like a medium at all it's as if there's just nothing there and we're drifting around we're not connected to the world we're completely independent it gives us this false sense of disconnectedness I think that water removes that and it really pulls you back into the fact that you are a, an object in the world living inside it with it and subject to it.
0: I think it also seems like it served as a connection with the machine. It served to connect us to the machine in your book as well, because I th- when I think of water, I also think of we come from water and our bodies are, so much of our bodies are water and it feels like something that's very connected to the living and to nature. And so then maybe put in contrast with the not alive, with, with machines or electric electricity and it, it kind of just... Seems like it is falls on our side of the binary with technology. So for you to have machines in the book, like I'm thinking of Everin, that scene where Everim is comes out of the water, and um, is like glistening with the with the drops of water on her body on their body. I think that it kind of serves to break down the barrier that you're kind of chipping away at the whole book between human and machine.
1: Yeah, I love that idea. Um again, you're 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 uh, you're demonstrating for me the way in which like um I think as a writer I learn a lot from readers who are good at the act of reading and And I've always said this, but sometimes it doesn't feel entirely true that I'm just one reader in the end of my own work and that the work is really not complete until it connects with the mind of a reader. But you're you're doing a good job of demonstrating why that's really true, because that's not something that, again, I... Was it there are metaphors that I consciously constructed in the book that I was very very aware of and there are there are other things that kind of extend out from that awareness and you know one of the points maybe of the of the book and, and I think a point in general that I would make about consciousness is that consciousness exists in this narrow sort of strip between unknowns the unknown sort of other, which we can't fully communicate with or articulate everything that's around us and reality as it is rather than as we perceive it. And then underneath that, the unknown self, all of this neural activity, all of this cellular communication, all of the things that are happening in our own body and even in our own minds that we're not really aware of and that push up into our motivations and make us think and do things that we're, that we're not aware of. And I think when you're, when you're a writer, some of the writing is occurring in that band and some of the writing is occurring also just below that band. And I'm I'm often confronted with this idea that, you know, when I reread my own work that I'm not aware of having written it in some way that it seems to have come from somewhere else. And I think that somewhere else is just this mysterious kind of underpinning uh, set of layers that aren't quite, you know, there, but certainly the Evrim uh, and and their emergence from this medium, which they're even more efficient in than like than humans are, right? Because Abram doesn't breathe and therefore doesn't have any trouble trans, you know, like sort of being amphibious, right? And being able to be in the water and and on land with the same sort of uh, comfort. That for me, yeah, it's it's a lot of the book is about. Trying to transcend binary barriers. Um, One of the initial binary barriers was just a challenge I set up for myself where I was told by someone, you know, well, books can either be really informative or they can be really entertaining. And I was like, I want to try to write a book that's really entertaining and informative. Like, I want to do both. So, you know, because I don't believe in that binary. In fact, I don't believe in binaries uh, at all for a lot of reasons. But um, because I think that they're sort of a pernicious uh, uh, construct and a way of, a way of categorizing things that leads to all kind of false um, categorizations. But you know, that's a really good point. That's that. There's this moment in the in the book where where Evram sort of shatters that binary. But I think Evram as a character in general is a shattering for me of that binary between machine and and human.
0: Totally. It sounds like. What what kind of philosophy were you reading when you were writing this book? It sounds kind of like new materialist, Donna Haraway. Yeah, Don't I do love you. Donna Haraway.
1: Um I've read a lot of Donna Haraway. I wasn't reading her in particular when I was writing this book, but I'm a big sponge that absorbs, you know, everything that I've that I've um encountered, and Donna Haraway was one of those encounters, especially in my in my undergraduate years at uh, UC Santa Cruz, uh, I was very into Donna Haraway. Um a huge influence on me. Early on was um, Kaya Silverman uh, and her book, The Subject of Semiotics, which sort of combines semiotics and psychoanalysis and Lacanian, you know, stuff into this amazing new thing. Also, film theory is in there and the idea of like suture and all these other things. I was reading a lot of biosemiotics, Jesper Hoffmeier um, and then um, uh, Eva Yablonka, who is an evolutionary theorist and also, I think, a philosopher. I mean, I think the great scientists are philosophers, really. And uh, lately, I've been reading a lot of sort of scientist philosophers. Uh, and then uh, Terence Deacon is another one. Um, Incomplete Nature was a book that I, that really heavily influenced the mountain and the sea. Uh, Terence Deacon makes some really sophisticated, complex arguments about how consciousness might have emerged I mean, and how life might have emerged uh, that I find convincing. But it's kind of you know, I engage in this kind of bricolage, right? Like it's just putting together what I find useful because in, in the end, what I really believe, and I think this is true of science uh, as well right now, is that we are in the age of metaphor. We are trying to describe the world in more and more sophisticated ways with more and more sophisticated models, but all of those models are metaphoric and we need to be really careful not to reverse the metaphors. And this is something that happens a lot, I think in science, right? Is you get well we're creating these ai um, and we are creating this machine learning processes that mimic the human uh, uh you know as far as we can and we're creating robots that mimic humans movement through space therefore human beings are computers and robots right we just we're just really sophisticated computers and robots well this is this is false it's a dangerous reversal of metaphor right we are patterning these things that we're inventing off of the things that we have come to understand about human beings. It's not that human beings suddenly become computational, right? It's that computation and our our development of sophisticated ways of computation extends from our, our, under, our basic understanding, very, very basic surface understanding of what is going on in our own minds and our own thinking processes. So... We're in this kind of metaphorical um, state right now, and I do think that you know Carlo Rovelli, other sophisticated sort of scientist philosophers, fully understand that that what science is essentially doing is just trying to to find more and more sophisticated descriptive metaphors for the world.
0: Totally, I'm going. And speaking of which, I'm going to link all of those names that you just said in the blog post everybody
1: oh awesome great great
0: um so i just want to go back to that idea of binary for a second mm-hmm. in terms of the characters i thought that one of the ways that you broke down binaries really well in the book was through alton setzang mm-hmm. in her cyborgianism in that mm-hmm. she she well, first of all, her human body is seems like a amalgamation of different ich, different experience and technologies that have kind of constructed it and and mm-hmm. constructed it and then reconstructed it again. Her all of her mm-hmm. scar tissue and her muscles and just her physical form is such a response to The technology that she's dealt with, and that she's Mm -hmm. the the violence that's been enacted on her through that technology. In in her time in the war and as a security, great way to
1: put it. Yeah, I love that.
0: But I also think that even more obviously, I think it was really cool how you had her hooked up to a translator, and that translator could either be a mechanism for people to understand her better or a mechanism for her to kind of shield herself from, from an understanding. There's two different translators. There's a a kind of a jankier translator that doesn't really work and that she can hide behind when she just wants to kind of be Mm -hmm. not, not fully engaging with people. And then there's a translator that works really well that she can fully engage with the people around her. Um, So I think that that was one really interesting way that she was a cyborg and also that she was so, even better than communicating with the people around her. She was better at communicating with the machines around her. She has such a flawless communication with that security operation that she runs. And it, the way you described it as like, it was kind of coming right off the tips of her fingers. Mm -hmm. She could operate it almost as if it were limbs, her own limbs.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Was that, um, were you thinking about her in kind of a cyborgian way when you were designing that character?
1: Yeah. um, So I I think that in some ways, Altan Tsetseg is like my favorite character in in the book. um, I mean, I love all my characters, you know, they're like children and they're all wonderful, but, but for me, she was, she uh, allows Allows the book to do things that it couldn't do without her. And, and one of those is really exploring the, where the boundaries of the body are, right? Like, where does the body end? She's able to sort of extend her body out into space, into all of these devices that she controls. And she's able to, in some senses, extend her consciousness far beyond the boundaries of her skull, right? Because she's she can see things that are happening very far away since she's controlling all of these uh, you know, um, somewhat misnamed drones, right because they're not they're not really they're not fully drones. they're sort of a, a, a new technology. but so she's controlling this whole set of um, both offensive and defensive, you know weapons around the island, but also, this observational platform that no one else has access to. She's able to find people and see things that aren't going on around. So she has this presence that extends outside of her body. And then, as you say, she's—you know—I would point out to people that she's one of the only characters in, besides uh, Evrim, who is physically described in in the book. So, because the physical description of her is important, because she is marked by technology, right, by war, and by her past, and so she has this she's got her physical presence but she also has this sort of extended presence and then the the translator was just a fun thing to to work with for me because i'm a so i'm i'm a russian speaker and i can you know one of the pleasures of speaking a second language is actually modulation right so one of the wonderful things about for example being in russia is if i sit in a cafe and i want to work i can ignore conversations that are going around me in Russian, going on around me in Russian, in a way I cannot ignore conversations going on around me in English, which is much more sort of built into my system. And so I can modulate my engagement with Russian. And I can also pretend, which I've done many times, to speak Russian, you know, less well than I do if I don't want to engage with someone, right? So I can, so in a sense, like I do, you know, a lot of what Altan Setzig so maybe one of the reasons I like Altan Ansetseg so much is she's so much like me at my sort of spikiest, right? When I'm at my most introverted moments where I'm like, I, I don't want to talk to people. And so I'm going to put on my broken translator, right? And pretend not to you know, be able to communicate. Um, but, uh, but yeah, she... She's able to modulate the extent to which she is engaged with the world in many different ways, both by plugging into this larger system, and then also, you know, by um, modifying her ability to communicate with others in order to hide behind that um, the broken translator or reveal herself to be much more than people thought she was by putting on the translator that works. Um, And some of this was directly inspired by a uh, James Tiptree Jr. uh, novella, which is called The Girl Who Was Plugged In. And, uh, you know, um, William Gibson loved this novella and William Gibson is the last person who would say that he invented cyberpunk, right? Or something like that. He like really hates that. But I would argue that The Girl Who Was Plugged In is the original cyberpunk novella. And Altan Setseg is a commentary in some ways on the girl who was plugged in. Mm-hmm.
0: So I thought that was really interesting, what you just said about Set saying extending her senses through technology. There's a lot of surveillance that goes on in the book. There's Set saying obviously. There are the listening devices that I believe it's the the man from the Republic of Istanbul talks about. And also the octopuses, we find out, are, are also conducting their own surveillance practices. Wh- why does surveillance play such a, such a large role in, in the lives of these people?
1: I think that surveillance has become a fundamental way. Uh, it's become completely entangled with modern life right? Um, when, you, when you think about it, the instruments of surveillance are also the instruments of convenience for us. So when we plug into like a GPS system and we navigate our cars around or ourselves around a, a new space, we are employing the instruments of surveillance, right? And in fact, we're employing a you know a military instrument of surveillance, right? Which, which the, the U.S. government just allows the rest of the world to use which is the global positioning system. Right. And, um, and so surveillance is such an enormous part of the experience of being modern now, um, that I think it's inevitable that it would extend, it would expand, uh, enormously, you know, in, in the future, it's expanding enormously. It's expanded enormously in the last 10 years. So I think people don't realize sometimes just how, um, how recently a lot of things happened. Right. Like it seems like it was forever ago, but the like button was invented in the 2010s. Right. Right. I mean, it emerged like in the last decade, that's crazy. Right. And that, that like the like button upended our entire way of communicating with each other because before the like button, Facebook and other places like engagement was writing a message back or nothing. Right. And so, and so now it's like this completely different world. Um, so that's a that's a fundamental change. Another fundamental change is because I keep so so what happens to me is because I'm a foreign service officer, and because before being a foreign service officer, I was overseas for a long time, I I have this time warp that happens where I go I come back to the United States every two years, and like some weird new thing has totally changed life in the U.S. Right? So this latest time it was like QR codes because when I left three years ago, there really weren't any QR codes. They were kind of this fancy thing that like you maybe use sometimes, and now it's like QR codes are everything. Like, um, and then before that it was, there was a point at which, and it wasn't that long ago, it was like 2012 or so, when it became absolutely necessary to have a smartphone with you at all times, right? And this is like literally in the, in the last 10 years. So 10 years ago, you could do most of what you might do in a city without a smartphone, just a flip phone, right? You didn't need to have all these apps, and now it's like unimaginable. You cannot navigate modern life without this device, right? Um, and so, so for me, having you know, but but the the cellular phone is an instrument of surveillance, right? It tells companies, it tells everyone where you are, what you want, what you're doing, what your desires are. So so we've built surveillance really into our our lives, and I don't think necessarily that all surveillance is bad because on the flip side of that right science is surveillance right and the most of the developments in science have kind of come from well three different things the incredible creativity of the human thought process which i think cannot be minimized the ability to compute larger and larger amounts of data Right, which has allowed science to really push further out into studying larger and larger areas, and then the extension of the human sensory apparatus. Right, uh, it's it's really the extension of the human sensory apparatus that has allowed for huge things like astronomy, right, to develop, and uh, you know, with the microscope, microbiology, all of those things. A lot of this is about extending our sensory apparatus to surveil parts of the world that we never were able to look at before. Right. And so, so for me, surveillance is a kind of terrifying, right. Part of modern life and gives you like the heebie jeebies, like when you think about it too much. Right. And then B also like an extraordinarily mind expanding thing that we use all the time and don't think about. Um, like these satellite views, and I mean, I use surveillance for research, right? I, you know, when I was, I've, I don't believe that personal experience is enough, so I always couple per- personal experience with tons of research. And so I was looking at satellite images of the Condo Archipelago the whole time I'm writing this book. I was like, the hotel where they were living is a real place, right? And I was using Google and you know things to like surveil that real place and you know line it up with the actions of the characters and all that stuff. So it is like surveillance is this fantastic way of expanding our, expanding our minds outside of our own skulls and beyond the limits of our human sensory apparatus, but also absolutely horrifying and a great threat to our personal freedoms. Right.
0: There was a line in the book that was like technology is, is there's always the flip side of it it's like there's always the unintended unintended consequences that are going to happen and if Mm -hmm. we come up with one with one form of technology there's going to be first of all there's going to be the the consequences the unintended negative consequences but then there's also going to be a new technology that has to pop up in order to deal with the old technology
1: right yeah yeah and uh, the the um the, the agent from istanbul talks a lot about um you know, he has a collection of these surveillance devices, right. That are increasingly more clever and then also increasingly more clever are the ways in which people fight against them.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, you know, he talks about like the thousands and thousands of human hours spent both inventing these things and trying to eliminate them. And I, I think that's a good, that's a good sort of way of talking, you know, in general about how, like, like technology, it's like all of these, all of these amazing human inventions and then all of these inventions, invented to counter the negative effects of those human inventions
0: yeah. right um, the, need, go ahead sorry I was not you you go if it's still about this I was gonna change
1: no 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 it's totally fine okay
0: I wanted to talk now about the octopuses I think part of the reason I found this book so terrific is because it's so scientifically compelling like I actually I learned a lot about octopuses even as they are now Mm -hmm. How do you understand octopus intelligence? Well, so, or let me narrow the question. Maybe Sure. how is it different from human intelligence just in, in the way that it's organized bodily?
1: Yeah. So, so backing up a little bit from that, I, there's an interesting thing that English has that almost no other language really has. And that's, um, phrasal verbs. And I think phrasal verbs are an interesting place to start because phrasal verbs are things like, oh, you know, I, I'll i pick you up on the way to the theater. And then since we're going in the same direction, I can drop you off at this place, right? Well, pick up and drop off and um, leave behind and, um, you know, get over something right all of the the, phrasal verbs are really interesting is they are all physical metaphors of how the body operates in its environment right and so they frustrate um people trying to learn english because they replace english verbs that are the that have counterparts in other languages right you don't we would never say anything except i'll pick you up but in fact you know it's like there is there is a verb (laughs) that that's replacing right And there's a verb that dropping someone off is, you know, replacing, right? I mean, there's verbs like deposit or, you know, collect that we don't use. We just use like these phrasal verbs. What phrasal verbs show to me is the importance of um, embodiment in meaning. So our meaning, and this is one of the reasons, for example, why artificial intelligence doesn't work very well and why robots really struggle despite decades of money being poured into developing them. They're still sort of staggering around. Living things are embedded in space and time in a way that is completely fluid in which we form a part of a loop with our environment and all of our communications emerge out of that physical embodiment within an, envir- within an environment. So this was an idea that I was really taking very seriously coming into the book, which is if you're going to speak, if you're going to communicate with, a, with another animal with such a physically different way of being in the world, that communication is going to be really difficult. And so some readers have complained, for example, that there's not enough progress made in the communication with the octopus. And I would would counter that I think in fact I was a little bit optimistic about how easy it might be to communicate with the octopus. And I, I was a little bit optimistic on purpose to kind of give the readers something. In fact, I think it would be nearly impossible, right? Because we have this very centralized uh, collection of neurons, all leading back to our brain. And then this spinal cord that radiates those uh, commands kind of out to our limbs. And this is, this is under, underplaying in some ways the new science that we've found that really shows how much more integrated our nervous system is with our guts and like other things. But I'm, So I'm somewhat sim- simplifying. But in general, you can say that creatures with a spine and a large brain at the end of that spine are pretty centralized systems where a lot of the, a lot of the activity, the neural activity is occurring inside that centralized uh, brain behind our skulls. Octopuses are not structured like this at all. Most of their neurons are in their limbs and they have a very strange neural structure where they have neurons that that go throughout their limbs and then they also have a circular neural sort of loop so that the limbs appear to be able to communicate sort of think about their environment in a sense by themselves and then also maybe communicate those thoughts to one another in a ring that goes around the limbs. And then they do have a sophisticated central brain but because it's not the destination of some of that neural activity and it's not as sort of top down in its structure you can sort of think about the octopus's mind as being suffused throughout its body in a way that human beings um, brains are not so the octopus is almost in a way a mind in the ocean right like a brain sort of floating around with limbs that are exploring these things. And, um, and what would it be like to be that? I mean, I think that what happens quite often with an octopus, and you can see this in videos of the way that octopuses interact with their environment is that when startled, the octopus's control system will immediately revert to that central brain and it will start doing things very quickly. But when it's not, And when it's just sort of in its regular mode, it's kind of just walking around and those limbs are thinking about touching things. They're reaching out, they're exploring, they're doing stuff. And I think it's a little bit like what it would be like. Okay, so do you drive? Okay, so people who drive, I think all of us have had the experience of waking up while driving, right? Where you're like, oh crap, I have been in charge of, you know, thousands of pounds of careening metal without being aware of it. That is really bad. Um, I think that an octopus probably spends a good deal of its time in that state where the central mind is sort of daydreaming while its limbs are doing other things that it's not entirely aware of. And then all of a sudden it'll be like, Oh, predator. Right. And kind of centralize its activity. So I think it's something like that, but there's other weird things going on. So for example, if you, if an octopus learns something new with one eye and one side of its body, the other side of its body and the other eye won't learn that thing for a day. So there's some kind of weird hemispheric disconnection going on inside the octopus as well. So like I mean the octopus is just a great example of how science is amazing, but science is is still quite limited in its reach and and there's a lot of things that we're not fully Understanding going on there, um, but I think that you know the main idea is that the I wanted the challenge to be convincing. You know, it's not like oh, you know, these octopuses show up and all of a sudden we're basically you know composing a grammar <laughs> of their of their symbolic communication, right? Instead, it's like misstep after miscommunication after you know um, you know semi violence negative encounter after, you know, uh, um, after, after violent encounter. So, so, you know, there is this like sense in which the octopus is also as indifferent to human beings and their, and their desires as we are to their desires. Right.
0: It really was, it was, it was just another example that was making me think a lot about the idea of selfhood. In that the octopus, it, it does feel like a decentralized self, or mm-hmm. like a. You, you, it's hard to pinpoint where self lies in the octopus. Is right. it in one of the tentacles that's searching for one thing right now? Or is it in the decentralized, like, head? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was similar, kind of, to the way that you created an understanding of evrim and that um sorry what was the the man who was mapping the consciousness name
1: oh rustem yeah
0: yeah the way rustem was also thinking about consciousness well evrim first of all in that they were they're a conglomeration of multiple different minds into one patched into mm-hmm. kind of one but mm-hmm. also not mm-hmm and the way Rustem, Rustem understands consciousness as, or, or the self as something that's a, just a tangle of of different individual neurons folded into mm-hmm. a pattern. Mm-hmm. It was just, there's, it feels like there was such an expansion of what self means in all of these characters or all of these beings.
1: Yeah, and I think that, You know, in reality, that's, that's true. So, I mean, one of the things that, um, that I, I'm always aware of is, you know, the self exists in what I would call, what I like to call place time, right? So we exist in space time, of course. I mean, we have this, you know, sense of forward motion and there's a way in which time is, you know, is not real, but it's also created by gravity and all these things and we all, we, we understand that I think, um we're educated to, to, to understand that at least theoretically, but we also exist in something called place time, right? For me, which is on top of that space time, you also have culture and the social and all of this communication going on with our environment, with one another, et cetera. And that completely restricts and enables what the self is capable of. I mean, you and I, would just be completely fundamentally different people if we both existed, for example, during the late Eastern Roman Empire, right? In Constantinople. Like we just could not possibly be who we are in that place time. We, we couldn't possibly be having the kinds of conversations that we do. And yet we think of ourselves as being these very um, concrete, right? M- you know, motivated, um, directed kind of uh, entities. And we think about freedom in that way and ideas of free will. And I'm not saying that free will does not exist, but I'm just saying that all of these things are impinged upon by the environment. So the self is kind of constructed, not just internally, but externally. And, and so, so for me, in a way, like the octopus and um, Altan Setseg and Evrim and Ha and rustem and all of the characters in the book what they all have in common is this they undermine or they hopefully will undermine you know the reader's sense that the self is a contained entity that it ends at the skin that it ends at the skull right that it ends at the fingertip I um, mean, the self extends throughout the internet the world around us the things that we can learn from other people and uh, our upbringings and we're, we're just so completely embedded in context. Right. Um, of course in Buddhism, it's like the sense of, um, dependent co-arising, right? Like uh, how everything comes into being together and affects everything else. And it, I think that, you know, the difference of where we are right now in modern society is that like, that sounded really woo woo to most people 30 years ago, you know, most people 30 years ago was like, yeah, yeah. Like everything depends on everything else, blah, blah, blah. And now everyone's like, oh yeah, everything depends on everything else, right? Like ecology, you know, what we're doing to the world, animal extinction, you know, our own interactions, racism, uh, you know, uh, gender, like all of this stuff depends on the context, the context in which it's all embedded. And we, and I think people actually are starting to really take that into account. Like our actions have consequences for other people, right? Um, people don't get to just do whatever they want.
0: Right. But also on the flip side of that, I felt like that contextualization of the selves of the characters made you really sympathetic towards them. Like it there was no there was nobody that was the villain of the story. Nobody's whose nobody whose actions were emanating from some evil place inside themselves. Everybody was really deeply ingrained in the system and the structures that that encapsulated them. Like, I didn't, it seemed like the only real evil in the story, it wasn't even, like, the corporations that were creating these profit-driven activities or, like, that were the reason that that the people were being enslaved on the ships. It was, like, a structure or... A kind of outlook of indifference—that mm-hmm. mm-hmm. was the real villain in the story. Is that? Do you feel like that's true?
1: Yeah, you, you, you got it. That's it. Indifference is the is the real villain in the in the story. And I, I think, you know, um, we as a society need to give up in some ways on our ideas of villains, right? There's no Iago. Right. Um, oh. That was interesting hundreds of years ago, but now we've come to realize that, you know, the real things are structures that create people who do bad things. But those, those people are doing bad things because of the way that they've been formed by a structure, right? Generally. And so, yeah, that, that's exactly it. And indifference, I think, is the great um, poison, I think. Especially in the, in the Western system, it's the thing that poisons all of our interactions with one another and it poisons our interaction with the world. The false idea that we can just do whatever we want and we don't have to think about the consequences of those things. I mean, I think one of the confrontations that's happening right now in society is that it used to be that people could think. And it seemed reasonable to to think, if I say something, it is my intent that matters, right? Um, I am the sort of master of what comes out of my mouth and what it means. And now they're being confronted with the fact that meaning exists only in context. And the listeners, the way the listener is affected by what's being said is not only just kind of important, but in fact, integral to the act of communication itself. And so, no, you're not the master of, you know, the things that you say and you don't determine their meaning. Meaning is determined collectively by, you know, by society and, and meanings are changing, right? And that has to be accounted for. And I think that's actually one of the, so one of the frustrations that I see with, and this happens, you know, I won't like... I don't, want to, don't want to say it's exclusive, but it happens a lot with older people who grew up in a society where they felt that meaning was created by the speaker, right? And that the person receiving the words did not get to respond to that in the, in the same way. And I think that that way of understanding meaning is dying away. But we're going through this really uncomfortable cultural moment where people are like, no, 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 I'm not racist, for example, right? And then you have people saying, no, no, like... Your actions are are racist, and it's not because it's not. It doesn't depend on whether you intend them to be so. It's because they're embedded within a system of racism, which you are partaking in, you know, et cetera. So, so I think that these are these are they're important things to be considering, sort of as as a society as well, right? Yeah, indifference. You you totally got it.
0: (laughs) I feel like there was also though it wasn't that you were letting the characters off the hook completely. Like they were also responsible for their individual indifference.
1: Yes. 100%. I don't, I don't believe that, um, I don't believe that people are not responsible. You know, um, I don't think that people can be Yeah, left off the hook is a, is a good way to put it. Right. And a good metaphor for a, <laughs> for a book that takes place in and around the ocean too. But, um, Yeah, they really, they really can't be because their actions have consequences. And because we are, um, even if we are only apes in a way, right, we are apes with incredibly sophisticated minds that allow us to make choices. And even under duress, um, most of us can make better or worse choices. Um, I say most of us, because there are people who are so subject to, you know, abuses of one or of one um, type or another that they're not able any longer to make good choices. And unfortunately, in our society, those people who are unable to make good choices tend to be the ones who are also subjected to the justice system the most.
0: Well, I'm looking at the clock and I think that um, this is all the time we have.
1: This is wonderful.
0: Thank you so much.